Chapter 13 Meeting Miss Wright A few miles away, in Los Angeles, Dorothy Page woke to a new day. She was living with her parents, had been since she lost her husband in the war. She looked forward to her day off from the movie The Greatest Gift, but she still had a later shift at the diner and afterwards had to head to Glendale College. Her first class, business and management, started at 9 a.m. She was already in her second year, and the subject material came easily to her. She loved the experience of learning. It was more gratifying than almost anything she had ever done in her life. Her father had dabbled in the stock market with penny stocks. His advice had been well-meaning, but uniformly incorrect. For example, Coca-Cola had to be a fad and would soon be out of existence, and Dorothy had no doubt that anyone who was cultivating cow manure as a future source of skin cleansing had to be off their rocker. Dorothy had only taken his advice once, and wound up losing the entire $50 she'd invested in a penny stock for a company that claimed it would replace oil with coal for use in automobiles. It only took one bath in the NYCE to realize money was best invested wisely, and she learned to listen to her own voice rather than anyone else's. She made a vow to nod and smile whenever her father gave advice over the dinner table, but not take him up on it. Dorothy went to the bathroom, washed her face, and smiled at herself in the mirror. She could not get Evan out of her mind. There was something about him that was oddly curious and compelling at the same time. He didn't seem like other guys she'd met before. He was worldly, yet somehow innocent, a combination she had never encountered in a man. He was mannered and well-spoken, yet didn't seem to realize how fortunate he was to be where he was in his life. She'd love to know where he came from, what his family was like, if he had served in the war. Most young men his age had, but he didn't have the stare most of the soldiers and sailors came back with, a result of all the horrible things they had to see and do in the Pacific or Europe. She had to admit, she liked him. The more she thought about him, the more that feeling grew, as did her guilt. Robert, her husband, who had been killed in France almost two years ago now, had been her one true love. Even thinking about someone else, especially someone as strange and unique as Evan West, seemed wrong and exciting at the same time. Robert was a good man, dutiful but boyish. Dorothy never could imagine someone as sweet-natured as her husband training to kill for the U.S. Army. And yet he had, and paid the ultimate price for his service. He always assumed he would make it home in his letters to her. He never seemed at all worried that he'd not be back by Christmas 1944. Robert didn't live to see that December. He'd been laid to rest in a cemetery in Normandy, along with so many other soldiers who would never make it home. Dorothy swore to herself someday she'd go to visit him, but not any time soon. The wound was still too raw. He had given her the gift of her beautiful son, Richie, who was more than likely still asleep in the next room. 
Richie never knew his father, and Dorothy couldn't bring herself to talk about him. Even that was too painful. She wanted Richie to know about him, but how could a little boy even begin to contemplate a father he never knew, would never see? Now, Evan West had come along, and for the first time since she'd received that telegram in June 1944, she felt alive, different, lighter, not weighed down as much by that anchor of grief. She marveled at how Evan had gotten her a part in a movie, just like that, and expected nothing in return. She had kissed him, pretty impulsively, she admitted, and had felt a thrill. But did he feel the same way she did? She didn't know. Would Robert mind? How could he? He's gone. Dorothy looked away from her reflection and sighed. She knew he'd wish her well, wherever he was. She looked around her room, seeing the same four walls that had surrounded her as a toddler, a child, and then a teen and beyond. It was much the same as it ever had been. Lots of little girl items were still in evidence. A large doll with rosy cheeks regarded her from the floor. Framed prints of flowers and lambs dominated the walls, along with a cross on a necklace over her vanity. Everything in Dorothy's room screamed, home, safe, comfort. She crept down the narrow hall and headed into Richie's room, a cozy, brightly lit space with shelves lined with fire trucks, cowboy toys, and blue drapes to match his bedding. Richie was fast asleep in his bed, which was shaped like a Spanish galleon, his head nestled on a pillowcase dotted with airplane renderings. She had to wake him, feed him breakfast, and get to class. Dorothy put a hand on her son's open door, as if to steady herself, feeling a wave of emotion. Every time she saw Richie's serenely sleeping face, she felt certain she was in the presence of the Almighty. There was something so precious about a sleeping five-year-old. It was almost too much to take in. Dorothy was so grateful for Richie. All of the challenges, all that extra hardship that came with raising a child, was nothing compared to the unique, unconditional love she felt toward that little being, sweetly asleep under the blanket. That being that was part of her forever. In Beverly Hills, Evan woke up feeling like a new man. Today was an off day for the shoot, so he decided to take it easy. His first order of business was to pay Coop a visit and go over their plan. But then he wondered, what was their plan exactly? Did Coop have a way home? The more Evan thought about it, the less he liked the idea. And did Coop really want to go back to 1899? Seemed like a bad time to Evan, especially for black people. But considering his mentor and friend was Nikola Tesla, Perhaps returning to his time would be worth it for Coop. Evan dressed and reached in his pocket to feel his precious three dimes and the remains of the rose petals Gwen from 2021 gave him. Though they'd broken up only a few days before, there was now 75 years between them, and he was glad for it. What he had been missing in his relationship with Gwen, he had found in spades with Dorothy. Sweet, 
gracious, charming Dorothy. He would keep the petals to remind him that the love he'd longed for was here, in 1946. Evan was unsure if he should just walk into Jimmy's house or not. Walking into a Hollywood star's residence still felt a bit presumptuous to him, even though Jimmy had done much to make him feel at home. He got to the kitchen door and knocked for a second, but heard nothing. He walked inside, and the kitchen was quiet, except for the hum of the Frigidaire. Jimmy must still be asleep, or maybe he was out, playing golf at the Wiltshire Country Club with Henry Fonda. Evan noticed an envelope on the kitchen counter addressed to him. He opened it and pulled out the note inside, which read, Good morning, Evan West. Good having you here. Eggs and orange juice in the frigid air. Help yourself to anything you need. I'll be away until later tonight. Here's twenty dollars to get you through the day. A man can't survive long in Los Angeles without a little jack. Jimmy. Evan almost teared up at Jimmy's generosity. He helped himself to a glass of orange juice, then cleaned the glass thoroughly. He pocketed the twenty dollars and headed out. He walked to Wilshire, hailed a cab, and told the driver to take him to 4356 Clarissa Avenue in Las Feliz. The driver wordlessly drove him through Beverly Hills to Santa Monica Boulevard, then north on Highland all the way up to Franklin. Evan suddenly remembered that he still had to pay Sal back. He made a mental note, then went back to enjoying the drive to Las Feliz and the colorful show outside the cab window comprised of big metal cars, Spanish-themed buildings, and an endless stream of palm trees. Not once in his life had he just sat back and enjoyed anything. He was always in such a hurry to get to the next stage of life. But here, now, he felt he could stop, if just for a second, to enjoy life and take in everything without the anxiety that came with making it. Actually, just being in 1946 made Evan feel like he'd made it. He noticed as they drove along that there were no homeless people wrapped in blankets, no graffiti on the walls, no beggars on the street corners looking for handouts. Whatever went wrong between 1946 and 2021 had been profound, and it wasn't lost on him that the United States in his time had become an empire in sharp decline. He was daydreaming when the taxi stopped at 4356 Clarissa, a classic L.A.-style bungalow in a quiet neighborhood. Evan spotted a 1938 Dodge parked out front, presumably Coop's wheels. Evan paid the man, then headed up the sidewalk to Coop's house. He knocked on the door, and Coop answered, wearing dress slacks, a dress shirt, and a vest. Coop graced Evan with a wide grin. <laughs> what took you so long? Coop laughed. Betcha my house is nicer than Jimmy Stewart's. Then again, perhaps not. Evan regarded Coop's formal wear, recalling that he was from the 19th century, an era in which men dressed far more formally than their 20th century counterparts, even on their day off. Old habits are hard to break, no matter what time period you're in, Evan mused. Please, come inside. It's about time you see my laboratory. 
Coop lifted his eyebrows and ushered Evan in. Evan's jaw dropped. Laboratory was an understatement. Coop's home was a replica of Dr. Frankenstein's workplace, complete with enormous machines strung together with heavy wiring from wall to wall. Not so much a laboratory as it was a nuclear power plant. Coop had taken out the ceiling, and wires fell from what used to be an attic. It was pure steampunk. Late 19th century knowledge using 1946 electronic trappings. Evan was astonished by the house, which was a lot more 1931 Frankenstein than 1946 living space. And that movie's action had taken place in a tower on a hill somewhere. Coop had apparently managed to replicate the same effect in a bungalow, a marvel in itself. What does the landlord think? Evan finally asked. He doesn't mind, since the landlord is me, Coop answered. The electricity bill is somewhat expensive, but I can manage. There's not much point in saving money if you're not in your own time and don't plan on living out the rest of your life 47 years in the future. Evan was still taking everything in, all those machines strung together with ladders and catwalks, antennae and oscillators. Where'd you find all this stuff? Evan murmured. It's astonishing how much technology you can find from radio shops and the newer military surplus shops springing up all over town. You can buy aircraft radio, radar sets, naval sonar and its British equivalent ASDIC, field generators, frequency boosters, you name it. It's available. Evan walked toward the equipment. Knowing better than to touch it, he'd hate to get electrocuted and this stuff looked like it could fry a man alive. So, what are your plans with all this stuff? Evan asked. Coop seemed surprised by the question. The plan is to return to the time we belong, he answered, as if stating the obvious. I'm zeroing in on how we can get back. I have been laboring on this the last two years. It's my only purpose. He walked slowly among his machines clearly proud of what he'd constructed. You weren't kidding when you said your place was cramped, Evan observed. Coop nodded, then pulled down a massive knife switch. The room began to hum, slowly at first, and then with fury. Evan could feel the entire room fill with electricity, buzzing like a thousand angry hornets. You might feel a little weird now, but you'll get used to it. Coop threw another switch. This one threw off sparks when it came to life. A bright yellow spinner on top of the machines began to rotate and whirl at an impossibly high speed. Evan couldn't help but be amused at the Jacob's Ladder machine near Coop throwing up sparks one after the other. What does that one do? Coop seemed annoyed. If I had to explain what all of these did, we'd be here all day solving nothing. Let's just say they generate power on an immense scale. Enough to revive a corpse stitched together? Evan asked, not able to resist. Coop looked puzzled, clearly not getting the reference. He twisted a knob on one machine, and a sphere of golden electricity, not at all unlike the one Evan had seen on Lake Ridge and Coanga, formed above Coop 
who reached into the electronic protoplasm, fashioned an electric ball, and then threw it Evan's way. Evan panicked and ducked, but the ball of electric protoplasm wisped into nothing before it reached him. Evan slowly straightened up, then began laughing hard. He motioned for Coop to make another one. Coop obliged with a grin, making the next one bigger. It splashed over Evan, who didn't duck this time. It washed over him, and his hair stood on end. Evan blinked, feeling hot all over, his body tingling almost pleasantly. Almost. Coop laughed. <laughs> Nicola taught me that trick. He exulted. Scared you. You have to be forthcoming. Evan nodded. Ever thought about using that as a self-defense weapon? Coop's brow furrowed. Why would I do that? It wouldn't be portable, but perhaps that's something I could work on? The crime in this area is lacking, but it is something to consider. Now, however, our task is to get us back to our time. Again, how fast was your automobile going? Evan took a seat in a very small chair, and told Coop the entire story from beginning to end. The chase, blowing stoplights, the heavy rain, the car reaching speeds it never had before, hitting 80, hydroplaning, the skid into the electric light pole. Coop took notes throughout Evan's explanation, face furrowed with concentration. Did lightning strike nearby when you hit the pole? Coop asked. Evan nodded. Acknowledged. Coop murmured. More current than I could ever generate with these. The governing dynamics of a current that intense could, in fact, open a hole in the Earth's magnetic field, but only in certain places. The field itself is not uniform. There are areas where it is more, what's the best way to describe it? More porous? I believe the area at Lake Ridge and Cahuenga is one such area but I don't have the proper instrumentation to affirm my theory. Evan thought about it. Everything Coop said made sense. Let me ask you this. The porous magnetic field. Is this something that is a constant, or does it come in waves? Coop nodded to himself, thinking. The magnetic field is alive, sometimes stronger, at other times weaker in any given point on the globe. If it does undulate with waves, they are difficult to predict. Nicola thought the magnetic field's rippling correlated with sunspots and solar flares, much like the aurora borealis. Again, this is just a theory, but I feel Nicola was on to something. Should a large thunderstorm erupt, we can't very well hurl your car with us in it into that very same light post at 80 miles per hour trying to prove a point unless we have a grasp on how the magnetic field operates. Insufficient facts always invite danger. Evan smiled. Another Spock quote. Coop was a human version of Spock and didn't even know it, which was fine with him. Spock, in those classic Star Trek episodes, always thought his way out of danger. The guy was loyal and unflinching. That was exactly the kind of partner Evan needed on this strange adventure, and he silently thanked God for it. Coop went to his table and picked up a device Evan thought looked like an old-time Bakelite alarm clock, round and steel-constructed, 
I want you to carry this at all times, Coop instructed. Evan took it, examining the device closely. This is a radio? Coop shook his head. No. Well, in theory, it is. It generates a radio signal. It's something I recently came up with. I never needed it until now. I need to know where you are at all times. In a normal situation, Evan would have been offended by such a request. But now, yes, he could use all the monitoring he could get. Thank you, Coop, he said, then cocked an eyebrow. Look, we barely know each other. Why do you trust me at all? I could make off with this or rob you. Who knows what I'm capable of? Coop mulled that over. Yes, I do have some reservations about you. To me, you are a man from a very distant future whom I know very little about. However, we are two strangers in a time in which we do not belong. It's akin to being on a ship or train where everyone speaks a different language. I will find that man or woman who speaks my language. It's simple human bonding, nothing more. We also have a similar goal, do we not? Evan could buy that. He doubted Coop was anything more than he appeared to be or said he was, and everything he said rang true. They were indeed the only ones from another time in a world of strangers. They discussed more theories, and then Evan asked Coop to drive him by the Sinclair on Franklin and Highland, since he still owed Sal money. Coop offered to pay, but Evan declined. He still had $18 from Jimmy's 20 and knew how easily money could spoil a friendship. Evan and Coop climbed in Coop's 38 Dodge and drove to the Sinclair. Sal spotted Evan and looked pleased. He told Evan that if he needed anything else, he'd be there for him. Sal also told him to go check on the repair of his car in case Big Mike wanted some money up front. They headed to Big Mike's. Evan looked over the lot, filled with cars in various stages of repair. He spotted his Ford, which Mike clearly had not gotten to yet. He marveled at how the car seemed more alive now than ever. He wondered if machines could somehow revive themselves, if transported back into the time in which they belonged. An interesting theory, Evan decided. He was new to time travel, so he had to take such concepts one step at a time. He spoke briefly to Big Mike, who promised to get Evan's car done soon before rumbling off with a wrench toward another broken-down vehicle. Coop and Evan chatted on the lot, forming a plan for the day. Coop agreed to drive Evan to Encino, after which he would return home and get back to work. How did you meet Nikola Tesla? Evan asked after they were on their way. Coop smiled as he drove. Long story for another time, but don't worry. I'll let you know. The best thing to happen to me in my short life was being hired by the world's most brilliant man. I'm a Horatio Alga story, Evan. My parents were former slaves, never educated, and I entered the halls of glory with a certifiable genius on a level most people could never understand. They pulled up to the railhead diner, and Evan could see Strickler's Bentley, now repaired, parked awkwardly, filling two spots. 
Evan's heart sank. Oh no, not this guy again. He supposed he could lay low, but that wasn't Evan's style. He was going to go in there, order a burger, make eyes with Dorothy, and then maybe he'd try to make peace with Strickler. Not an alliance, surely, but a non-aggression pact might be possible. Maybe. Coop clapped him on the back. I'll see you later, Evan. Tomorrow, on the set, or tonight? Could we have dinner? Maybe I could tell you my life story? Coop laughed. Let's shoot for that tomorrow. Tonight, I'm hoping to hear Dorothy's life story, if she'll share it with me. Evan got out of the Dodge and shut the door. Coop nodded, looking suddenly more serious. Don't get too close to anyone in this time, Evan. I'm speaking from a place of caring. Saying goodbye is always much harder to those who've captured your heart. Coop gave Evan a small salute, put his Dodge in gear, and headed off. Evan entered the diner and was relieved to see Strickler in a far booth, completely engrossed in a conversation with a man he had not seen before. He glanced at Dorothy, who looked at Evan with pure delight. He waved, she waved, and then Evan moved a bit closer to Strickler, though not enough that his presence was conspicuous, and overheard a bit of the conversation between Strickler and the stranger. Evan inched still closer so he could hear better, and quickly wished he hadn't. I need your assurances, Arthur, that the scenes we asked for will end up in the final cut, contract or no contract. The other man leaned into Strickler, a huge stogie cigar in his chubby soft hand. The man had male-patterned baldness, wore wire-framed glasses, was overweight, and seemed to be having trouble breathing. He looked like the quintessential studio stooge from the big boys upstairs. Capra's a genius, Bob. Strickler spoke as smoothly as he had to Jimmy Stewart. He knows where his bread is buttered, Evan thought with mild disgust. But he's annoying as a result thereof, Strickler continued. I assure you, though, he will use those scenes. You can do that? Bob sounded surprised. I had copies of the rushes made from day one. Evan could see Strickler in profile and caught sight of that smile of his, reminding Evan of the proverbial snake in the garden. It's a done deal. Evan was incensed. This weasel Bob is behind the corrupted version of It's a Wonderful Life that eventually made it into Connor's greedy, greasy hands. He knew he had to step in. Evan hoped to appeal to Strickler's sense of decency, if he had one. He headed toward the booth, then felt a tap on his shoulder. Going someplace, sir? Dorothy flirted charmingly. Just gotta have a word with these fellas, he said quickly, indicating Strickler and Bob. Now, why would you want to go and do something like that? You and that Mr. Strickler had some pretty strong words the other day. Dorothy looked genuinely concerned. I'm ready to go. So am I. Evan smiled and squeezed her hand. 
Give me a moment. She gave him a cautioning look, but Evan had to do what he had to do. He approached Strickler, convinced he had to say something important. It was a mistake. Mr. Strickler, Evan began. Strickler glanced at him, his pleasant, honey-filled expression deteriorating. He shot a venomous eye at Evan. What are you doing here? Uh, well, I'm here to... Never mind. Evan collected himself. Mr. Capra hired me on as one of his editors. Mr. Strickler, it would be a mistake to use any of those scenes you made Mr. Capra shoot. Strickler stood quickly like an Old West gunslinger, and Evan was suddenly aware that he was John Wayne tall, easily six foot four. He leaned into Evan and poked a finger into his chest like a dagger. Are you following me? Strickler hissed. No, Evan stammered. I just know what you're planning. Your voice carries in this place. Strickler looked around and spotted Dorothy, who stared at him nervously. Then he glanced at the other patrons, who all seemed disinterested in them. Strickler returned his predacious look to Evan. Evan backed away. There was no point in pushing this issue with an incredibly tall man who seemed very fit for his age. Diplomacy would not work with Strickler. He was too cunning and cruel. Evan held his hands up in the universal conciliatory way of one man telling another, I don't want to fight. Strickler, smelling blood and weakness, pounced. The other patrons went dead quiet. They could feel the energy rippling off the larger man. This is none of your business. Strickler's spit hit Evan partially in the eye. And if you mention anything you've heard here, I'll do something to you you'll never forget. Something snapped in Evan. He'd had enough of Connor Alcott and Arthur J. Strickler and all the other bullies of the world who were accustomed to controlling situations with their anger and malice. Evan found a burst of energy and shoved Strickler away. Strickler, like most bullies, was surprised and for a second afraid. Evan could feel someone behind him. He quickly turned and saw Bob's alarmed, fleshy face. Problem, Arthur? Strickler snatched Evan's hand away, turned to Bob quickly, and offered a greasy smile. Not at all, Bob. Just dealing with a small problem. Back with you in a minute. Strickler looked at Evan, sizing him up. Then abruptly, as if reaching an unsavory decision, he pushed past Evan and sat back down at his booth without a word. Dorothy waited near the door for Evan, her eyes wide with fear. Evan felt a swell of new confidence now that he had stood up to Strickler, but he was uneasy about it as well. I guess you showed him, huh? Dorothy said in a low voice. Ready? Evan loved it, smitten by her reaction to his dust-up with Strickler. It didn't seem to affect her at all, but maybe she was a good actor. Evan touched her hand. 
So, where are we off to? I'd love to take you to dinner, any place you like. Would you mind coming over and meeting my mom and dad at their place? Dorothy squeezed Evan's hand, eyes bright. He smiled. Not at all. I'd love to. We'll take my car, she offered. Outstanding. Dorothy walked to her car, a 1940 Chevy Master Deluxe Coupe that had obviously been driven hard. He noted the big visor over the top of the windshield, one of his favorite embellishments, destined to only ever adorn American cars from the 1940s. He climbed in, then hastily checked the right side rear view. He could see Strickler leaving the restaurant and heading to his Bentley, where Evan spotted Jack, Strickler's goon, waiting for him. Evan's heart sank when he noticed Strickler pointing his way. Evan slumped down in his seat, hoping they couldn't see him. Your car. 1940 Chevy. Nice set of wheels, Evan stammered to Dorothy. What I mean is that I like your car. Thank you. Dorothy beamed. I got it used, but I take good care of it, and it returns the favor. Here we go. She cranked the engine, smiled at him once more, and pulled out onto Burbank Boulevard toward the North San Fernando Valley. Evan noticed far fewer houses along this street in 1946 than were present in his native era. What Evan realized would eventually become Roscoe Boulevard was still a dirt road, cobbled together with a combination of brick and primitive asphalt. Dorothy pulled into one of several small, tracked home complexes, clean and neat, but not pretentious, and stopped in front of a charming home, surrounded by a reticular picket fence. Evan marveled at the smell of orange groves, and, of course, the ubiquitous exhaust smoke. He was witnessing the beginnings of the American dream here, a dream that was fading rapidly in 2021. Dorothy parked and looked at Evan. Welcome to Shay Dorothy. She was so sincere and sweet, it made Evan's heart hurt. Why don't they make people like this in the 21st century? He lamented. Uh, why bother asking? They walked together through the front gate, and Evan noticed that Dorothy had her hand in his, as if she'd already taken him as her boyfriend. He was mystified, but exhilarated. There was something about this girl that got his stomach in knots, and his heart beating like a marching bass drum. I'm glad you're here. Dorothy turned to Evan and gave him a light kiss on the lips. She smiled. Ready to meet the folks? Hold on a second, Evan said, because he had to tell her the rules. He would not, could not, break this woman's heart. Look, I'm not sure I'm ready for a real relationship, because I don't want to hurt you. Dorothy took Evan's hand. How about if we see where this goes? I'm pretty tough. Let's not lay down the rules now. Let's just try to have some fun. Her smile was infectious. Evan was seduced. I hope you don't mind me being so forward, but that's just how I am and who I am. Lots of guys don't like it or take me the wrong way. 
You're not one of those fellas, are you? Evan shook his head and smiled. Just let me take the lead now and again, he replied. Dorothy smiled and stepped onto the front porch. They entered the house, and Evan's eyes adjusted to the darker light. A middle-aged woman walked into the foyer from the kitchen and looked at Evan, giving him the once-over from head to toe, twice. Well, hello there, stranger, she said to Dorothy. The older woman had an honest, open face and held a freshly baked peach pie in both hands. It smelled like heaven. Hi, Evan said. Evan West. I'm Dorothy's mom, Ellen, but you can call me Mrs. Page. Nice to meet you, Mrs. Page. His eyes slid down to the aromatic concoction in her hands. That looks like some fine pie you have there. Peach, my favorite. Ellen Page remarked, smiling. Mine too. Evan just came into town a few days ago, Mom. He's working on the film with Mr. Capra. He's a movie editor. Dorothy explained. How lovely, Ellen said, approval in her tone. Anyone care to say hello to Dorothy's dad? Or am I just more wallpaper around here? Mr. Page appeared behind his wife. The mid-sized man wore reading glasses, farmer overalls, and a Colonel Sanders-style western tie. Evan, this is my very sensitive and easily offended dad. Dorothy blushed and waved at him. Donald Page, son, the older gentleman said. Doggone good to meet you. Likewise, sir, Evan said and shook his hand. Where do you hail from, son? I, uh, here and there, and may I say, you both have raised a wonderful daughter here in Dorothy. Good family makes for good kids, Mr. Page quipped and chuckled. At that, a little boy rampaged into the room, wearing a Mo Howard bull haircut of dark hair. He finished tearing through the space and stopped abruptly before Evan staring at him with big round eyes. Howdy, partner, the boy said and waved at him. Evan waved back. Hi, yourself. Hi, Mommy. Richie ran to Dorothy, leaped into her arms and hugged her. Dorothy smiled down at him. How's my big boy today? Evan stared. Dorothy has a child? How? She was so young. And, well, she seemed single. Fine, the boy shouted, then squeezed out from her embrace, dropped to the floor, and called out, Hey, rancher, come on, boy. A moment later, a shaggy mud of a dog padded out, panting. Evan was struck by the humanity of rancher's appearance. The light eyes poking out from the fur were filled with expression. The way his mouth opened wide, he even looked like he was smiling. This is Rancher, Richie announced. And I'm Richie. Who are you? I'm Evan, he replied, and scratched one of Rancher's ears as the mud approached him to give him a curious sniff. Richie is my son, Evan. Dorothy looked at Evan a little tensely. Richie... You look a lot like your mom, 
Evan commented, then knelt down. And Rancher here. Buddy, I feel like I've known you all my life. Your breath smells about as bad as... He eats anything, Evan, including cat poop and grass, Richie explained. All right, enough canine culinary talk, Mrs. Page commanded, setting the pie on the kitchen table. I'm about to cut this pie, and I'd like to keep my appetite if no one minds too much. Richie turned to Evan, eyeing him warily. Maybe I like you. Maybe I don't, mister. But why are you here? He asked, furrowing his brow. Your mom invited me, Evan said, his hands on his hips. Well, I don't know why, Richie said. Everyone laughed at his boyish honesty. The pie was excellent, the sugar and crust beyond anything Evan had eaten in 2021. He would never get used to how good the flavor of food was in 1946, after growing up on a staple diet of sawdust. Richie raced to the table, where Mr. Page was collecting plates and glasses. Hey, Mom, Richie looked at Dorothy. Can I show Evan here what Uncle Mo gave me? Dorothy patted him on the back. Of course, honey. Richie ran off, and Dorothy turned to Evan. Richie's dad was killed in the war just after he was born. Afterward, we moved back here with Mom and Dad. It makes things easier for me since I go to school and work, as you know. Dorothy explained. What's your favorite subject? Evan asked. Knowing the answer, based on the investment-savvy Dorothy he had met in 2021. Business administration at the college. I even dabble in the stock market, just like Dad. Evan smiled. You don't say. Yep. I'm actually pretty good at following hunches, too. Better than my dad, she whispered as Mr. Page turned around and flashed a false frown. I heard that, he said, then snickered. And my daughter here is just plumb lucky, that's all. She don't know squad about stocks, he grumbled to himself as he headed to the kitchen. He put some stock into pig's knuckles a month ago. I put it into Coca-Cola. He lost all his money when the pigs got gangrene and lost their feet. Evan laughed. I think the Coca-Cola investment is a sound one, Dorothy. She looked to Evan, her eyes twinkling. He was struck by her inner beauty, which seemed so infectious. Evan, I know this is really none of my business, but... She hesitated. Go on, he urged. I was just wondering if, you know, you... Well, if you have a... A girl? Yes, a girl. Evan sighed. Yeah, I did, for a while. But I blew it. She was great, but... But what? She and I just weren't a match. Didn't like the same things. Dorothy shrugged and smiled. Why would you want to be with that person, then? Evan wondered about that, too. Why had he been so into someone he had absolutely zero in common with? Evan's attention was seized by Richie flying into the room, making whirring airplane noises. He shoved a model airplane into Evan's hand. Evan examined it in detail. Wow, a P-80 shooting star, 
pretty spiffy, huh? Richie beamed. I'll say. Dorothy nudged Evan and smiled. You know your airplanes. My brother works at Lockheed, and this is one of their prototypes. They call it a jet. Imagine a plane without propellers. What'll they come up with next? Evan nodded enthusiastically, forgetting himself for a moment. Yes, the P-80 is really the precursor to the F-86 Sabre, and those were Korean war heroes, he said. Dorothy furrowed her brow. Never heard of a Korean war. Evan flushed. How could he recover from that? He had to keep playing his part. No one would ever believe he was a time traveler, and the last thing he needed was to be considered crazy. Neither have I, Evan said. I meant, you know, Korea, Japan, Germany, all the same. You hang on to that, buddy, he suggested to Richie, handing the plane back to the little boy. That's going to be a collector's item one day. You're a visionary. That's what I think, Dorothy said, without any trace of sarcasm or skepticism. Nah, Dorothy, I'm just traveling through time. Metaphorically speaking, that is. Evan inwardly cringed. Had he said too much? Dorothy seemed to like Evan's answer, since she leaned over and kissed him quickly. Richie didn't miss this at all. You guys gonna get married now? Cause you better ask me first. Dorothy blushed, then looked to Evan. Well, we'll just have to see about that, won't we? The answer seemed to satisfy Richie, and he fired away, verooming the airplane around the room. Dorothy and Evan ended up talking for a few hours about anything and everything. She told Evan about her husband the day she got the telegram from the War Department, her worries about raising Richie, about her enthusiasm for business, numbers, and the American economy. She related how she lived through the Great Depression and how the experience changed her and everything else she knew. Evan was enthralled. Dorothy didn't talk like the women he knew from his own time. She didn't talk about herself so much as make observations about the world she saw around her. She was intensely curious about everything. History, economics, human emotions, and behavior. Evan added what he could when he could, with his 21st century wisdom. But he realized Dorothy was far more insightful than most people. He had to be cautious. Mrs. Page asked Evan if he would stay for dinner a pot roast with some baby carrots and squash. He couldn't say no. The food was amazing. Afterward, they loaded up on ice cream, each having three servings and coffee. Evan was stuffed. He couldn't remember eating so much in his life. After they finished, Dorothy offered to drive him back to Jimmy's house. They rode in silence on the way home. Evan was exhausted from the day's events and the huge meal. Dorothy pulled up to Jimmy's house after Evan gave her directions. She never asked how he knew Los Angeles so well, because maybe, in some way, she felt he belonged here as much as she did. Evan, thank you for spending the day with me, she said, putting the car in park. Her eyes slid to his, 
I know it's not like going out and kicking up your heels, you being a single eligible bachelor and all. I'm sure it was pretty boring compared to the nightlife you're used to. Evan smiled and put his hand on the wheel. It was a perfect night, Dorothy. You must believe me, I'm not exactly Mr. Nightlife. He leaned in and kissed her delicately yet firmly on the lips. He drew back, eyes locked on hers. I'll see you tomorrow, on set? I'll be there. My big scene is tomorrow, I think. She laughed. Evan got out. She waved, started her car, made a quick U-turn, and headed back to her parents' house. He looked up to the stars and sighed with contentment. Two shadows abruptly appeared before him. Evan recognized Strickler's lackey, Jack. The man was on Evan before he could react. Evan noticed Jack's arm raised high. Something that looked like a blackjack was clutched in his hand. The weapon came rushing down toward Evan's head. Evan slipped into darkness. It didn't even hurt when he hit the sidewalk.